0: And I used to get escorted by military police carrying an M-16 to the train station every day, you know, for the first month of trying to go back to work. And so it just was one of those things where you start thinking about, I got a kid on the way. I've been through this crazy experience. I'm working 20 hours a day. I come home at 3 a.m., you know, and then I'm up at 7 a.m. and I'm doing it again. And the solution for that to date has been... I've tried to forget that era of my life but i mean pretty much this podcast has brought back many future years of therapy i expect that is going to make my therapist very happy and i got some really good advice along the way early in my career and one of the pieces of advice that i got was mm-hmm. and no one really ever tells you this no one ever stops you along the way and no board member or no investor is going to be like hey like are you making sure that you're balancing everything or is everything throttled or Is your family on board with this? Are you kind of taking enough time off or whatever it is? No one's ever going to ask you that for the most part. My name is Rich Rasgatis. I am a 47-year-old co-founder and CEO of Flow Water. Our company headquarters, as well as my residence, is in Denver, Colorado. And Flow Water is a company that's focused on changing the way that the world consumes, drinks, and enjoys water. And the foundational basis of our company is a Everybody in the world deserves access to clean drinking water that they can trust. And our job is to equalize and democratize water so that everyone has access to trustworthy drinking water wherever consumers work, rest, and play. And in the process of that, our mission is to put an end to single-use plastic water bottle pollution. So
1: do you go by like R-Cube or what?
0: (laughs) No, but in college, I sat next to a guy named Richard Ramsey. And so there was Rich Razgaitis, Richard Ramsey, and they used to call us Art of the Fourth, but not since then. I just go by Raz.
1: Is Rich your original first name? And then I like Raz. And then Razgaitis, right, is your last name? So that's the R-A-Z?
0: Yeah, Razgaitis is the last name. So that's just one of the more favorable nicknames that I developed in youth that stuck.
1: Do you have any unfavorable nicknames?
0: Of course. I mean, we all do. I mean, listen, if you're a teenage boy... You picked up several along the way, but none that I use anymore. So everyone calls me Raz.
1: You scared to reveal it? You don't want to be called those names anymore.
0: Uh, in fifth grade, I got the nickname Richie Big Nose. If we're ex- <laughs> if we're if we're, ex- if we're exposing vulnerabilities here, which I'm more than comfortable to do, if you've seen me in person, there's no question why, and no dispute as to why I got that. So I did learn that you know, with growing out my hair a lot longer it helps retain some proportions a little bit better but you know when i was in fourth grade and i had a buzz cut or fifth grade and i had a buzz cut it definitely was an appropriate nickname
1: (laughs) my mom made me do the buzz cuts too i think it just saved money and make it easier
0: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly
1: and you're in denver colorado
0: yes i am not actually at this exact moment i happen to be in silicon valley
1: i guess you're based out of denver colorado so are you like quite the traveler
0: well, pre-pandemic, extensively, well over a hundred thousand miles flying a year, so very frequent. New York, LA, SF, Denver circuit, and then a fair amount of travel periodically, at least, but a couple, three times a year in, in Asia, visiting manufacturers, current manufacturers, potential partners. But of course, a lot of that's been curtailed. Though I still spend a moderate amount of time traveling between Denver and California to spend time with our sales leadership and customers, but like for all of us, most of that has been uh, curtailed for what seems to be at least months longer. And hopefully that's it.
1: I think originally it was only supposed to be like 14 days, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's up this red for yeah. 14
1: and then it was 30 days. Yeah.
0: We've been flattening the curve for like a year now. <laughs> I will say having gone through getting COVID and having more than a mild case of it, I do have a new appreciation for uh the argument to shelter in place. But, you know, that being said, life's got to also go on. So it's a difficult balance that we're all in right now. But I think the reality, of course, is life will get back to normal someday. And hopefully we move a lot closer to normalcy in the back half of this year. But also the reality is nobody knows anything anymore. So we will see.
1: And I'm looking at your product here on your website what Drink Flow Water. And it seems like this product, has it done well given the pandemic or no?
0: It's done really, really well in certain verticals. And so if you look at our core business going into the pandemic and just a little bit of backdrop on this, the primary product that we have launched in the marketplace today is the flow water refill station, which has a really powerful 7X advanced purification system in it that removes everything for the most part that's bad in water adds good stuff in there and makes it taste amazing and better than bottled water. And so that was our primary product that we've developed four generations of, four product improvements of over the last six plus years since commercialization. So going into the pandemic, we were doubling year over year. So for the most part, over the last five years, we've seen 100% growth year over year. And we were on track to do that again in 2020. Going into the pandemic as well, most of our business verticals were hotels, schools, corporations, gyms, and retailers. You know, we all know what's happened to those verticals. I mean, they're probably some of the hardest hit. And so having a B2B business, events business was growing incredibly well. We were actually generating revenue by providing water as a service to events, which was great for the brand and also great for offsetting kind of having a negative marketing expense. You know, that, of course, evaporated temporarily we're starting to see that stuff pick back up. But I mean, that's just one example. Same with gyms or hotels. So some of the verticals experience pretty substantial compression. At the same time, there's some things that really worked in our favor. And I suppose it's like anything in business, which is, you know, you get hit by a major macro event or a major competitive event, or in this case, now all of us are going through or have gone through a pandemic which is like once in a lifetime event, but some of the downside leads to a lot of pivoting opportunity. And so some of the plus side that we've seen is schools for us have done incredibly well. So one of the things that we did very quickly is we shifted focus rapidly away from gyms and hotels and some of the corporations because they were going to be closed. And we moved our focus towards essential businesses and warehouses and distribution centers, and then also, of course, schools because one of the things that's super essential is having clean drinking water that you can trust for students.
1: Yeah. And again, I'm on the website, so I can easily see, but how would you describe it if no one can see it as far as this kind of water station fill up? Also the main thing, it looks like you came out with a foot pedal that I could see would help out a lot too. People scared to even use their fingers to touch anything.
0: Yes, correct. So how I would describe it uh, if you have not seen it, you can go to drinkflowwater.com or add drinkflowwater on any social media handle and you'll see it. But if you have not done that or cannot see that and you're listening to this podcast right now, I mean, the way I would describe it is this is a six foot tall device that has, most people would say, I think unprompted and consumer research. One of the things that we would kind of hear a consumer unsolicited says, oh, that's like a very Apple-esque looking hardware and water dispensing device or a hydration station. And so it's a six-foot-tall device that enables you to take in any tap water anywhere in the world, hook it up via a six-foot line, and have it run through this very powerful 7X advanced purification system that's all within the six-foot-tall device that has a 16 by 18 square-inch platform. And out of that, you basically get super fresh, amazing-tasting Pure, pristine, and clean drinking water on demand.
1: How much does one of these bad boys
0: cost? So it's roughly $4 a day when we have customers sign up for a five-year lease. So the majority of customers, when we drop a free trial unit into the essential business, the factory, the manufacturing facility, the school, and we typically do a free trial for one to two weeks, 90% on average will convert into a contract. The majority of those contracts are for five-year leases. You know, it breaks down to four dollars a day, roughly. I mean, it's one hundred and twenty-five dollars a month, but on a daily basis, it's basically less than a cup of Starbucks that you can use to hydrate an entire office or school or what have you.
1: And so, on that five-year lease, just again, if anyone's traveling or they're doing it, I did the math about between seven and eight k.
0: The contract value, generally speaking, is one twenty-five times sixty months, seventy-five hundred dollars. And, you know, it's just like a car lease, which is shorter lease. You know, we'll do it for a little bit more money on a monthly basis. And then school systems, for the most part, our experience, 95% of gyms and hotels and corporations prefer to lease the product. Most schools, you know, probably 90% of public and charter schools tend to buy the units. And that's generally because schools don't sign multi-year operating leases. You know, oftentimes those are approved by the school board on an annualized basis. So it's difficult for them to sign multi-year operating leases. And so what they use are bond fund dollars to fund CapEx purchases. So what they will typically do is purchase the units outright. And that's kind of the only segment that generally purchases them outright rather than leases them.
1: That makes sense for most businesses, right? If they don't want to spend that much money on that, but they're happy, especially like A gym, if they're going to still be in service even like a year from now, makes a lot more sense to lease it versus buy the thing. But as far as your business and your company, how big is it together? Like all the employees, and you said how many units you're going to have in the 50 states, but can you give us an overall generalization of how big your company
0: is? We have 43 employees that are in Denver, Colorado. We've got about 40 investors as well. So we've raised everything from a seed to a series A to a series B round of capital. So 40 really committed investors and 43 really fantastic teammates, not all of whom reside in Denver, but many of whom reside in Denver, as well as California and several others that are interspersed throughout the United States.
1: And how much money have you raised today?
0: We've raised roughly $25 million. So that is a combination of, again, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but it's a C and A and then a B round of financing. There were also some bridge rounds in there, and there were also some equity crowdfunding that we did. There's also some venture debt built into there. But in any case, generally speaking, it's a C and a of B, which has comprised the bulk of our funding, and that's roughly $25 million in paid-in capital.
1: It seems complicated to handle all that, right? I mean, from my perspective.
0: <laughs> As an entrepreneur... I don't know how many people are familiar with raising capital that are listening to your show, but I mean, what my experience is that the CEO is generally the person responsible for capitalizing the business. I mean, at a certain stage as a business, it becomes a lot more advanced, you know, and you're talking about uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in annual revenue and you're raising perhaps 50, 100, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in capital, in many cases that's debt. CFO might more customarily do that when you're raising more conventional debt capital or they would be heavily involved in kind of an equity and debt raise. When you are raising a seed round or a series A or a series B, my experience is generally that CEO's job is primarily to do that and to lead that and to be spearheading kind of 80 to 90% of those discussions. I generally do bring in a CFO at various points along the way, you know, when we're reviewing business models, key assumptions, KPIs, underlying unit market economics, projections around, you know, the three to five year plan. But as a CEO, you need to be pretty adept at being able to have those conversations and really just bringing in CFO or your COO or parts of your team to help back up the story and to be involved in the discussions and kind of the revisions and battle testing, everything that's gone into the financial model, as well as the performance to date.
1: Have your nose to the ground too, right?
0: You do. I mean, it does come down to a big execution game.
1: And that's easy for you because you have a big nose, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) You didn't get my joke, Rich.
0: (laughs) No, it's, it's. I you know, I've tried to forget that era of my life, but I mean, pretty much this podcast has brought back many future years of therapy, I expect, that is going to make my therapist very happy. (laughs) That she told me to ask you about it. That's why. It should be quite easy for me to put the nose to the grindstone. Yes, indeed.
1: Well, I was going to say, too, I mean, when you were growing up, did you want to build this better water machine? Was that your idea in fourth grade and people made fun of you for that, too, or
0: what? Those are always romantic and charming stories and Instagram memes, but I don't really know anyone that has had it work out quite like that. So when I grew up, you know, when I say grew up, I mean, at a certain point, it was like high school and college. But I mean, what I really thought I wanted to do was probably this kind of crazy idea of wanted to be president of Johnson & Johnson. I mean, that was a lot of people like growing up wanted to be president of the United States of America. I wanted to be president of J&J. That was my dream. And for many years in high school and college, it was either that or it was either oddly a pediatrician or a trial lawyer, which means I would have either been a very scary pediatrician or a very scary trial lawyer, perhaps, because those are two pretty divergent professions. But I really was most enamored with business though, and I was entrepreneurial to a pretty significant degree. But I mean, there just weren't the number of entrepreneurial opportunities that existed. I'm 47, so. I graduated high school in 92. I graduated college in 96. And you know, if you're starting a business in 96, I mean, that was just the beginning. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I went to school at a small 2000 person school in Anderson, Indiana. Some amazing, amazing, amazing friends and that are doing such amazing stuff. I mean, sometimes I hear them, not only I want to put this plug in because I admire it so much. You know, sometimes I get a, a message from some of them like, oh, it's so cool that you're like doing this world-changing idea. You know, I wish I were doing something like that. You know, and I have such a different perspective than them. I mean, of course, I feel like it's a real privilege for us to be able to do something that I think someday will have a massive, a global impact around building a better brand of water that undoes something terrible for the environment. Single-use plastic water bottles. That being said, you know these guys that I went to college with, even though it was kind of you know in the sticks of Indiana, and they're doing some amazing things as well. I mean, I admire the families that they're building, the sports teams that they're coaching. The instructing that they're doing by being educators and like 30, 40 students in their class. And I just am so inspired by them and the people that I went to school with. But you know, I did not go to an environment that was like a highly entrepreneurial. You're starting to spin out from school. You go start a company, raise a little bit of capital. Like the only people that were starting businesses for the most part when I was graduating were people that were possibly starting a landscaping business or a construction company or a, an agency or selling marketing collateral or starting a small Marcom business. So I graduated, actually went to go work for JJ. It was my first job out of school.
1: And you told them you're ready for CEO role right then or no?
0: Yeah, I did. I said I shut up to the interview and I was like, men and women, I'm here. And it didn't quite work like that. So I got hired, which was kind of the Google of the day. I think J and J is a fantastic company still to this day. I don't know how many people kind of think of it as, you know, like now you think of Amazon and Google as kind of being great to have jobs and great to get into jobs. And they are, of course. But back in the day, it was J&J, for example. And so I learned that there was like this 10-year career track at J&J, and particularly in the field, like you'd be office hospital sales, and then you'd be specialty sales, and then you'd be a sales manager for three to five years. And then at the age of 32, I was like, I might be able to move into corporate. And I thought, man, it's going to take me 10 years to get to where all that action is. This is an eternity. So I ended up Getting an opportunity to work at Eli Lilly, and which would not maybe sound like moving to where the action is, but kind of made a deal when I got into that job. So I did really well with J and J for a period of a couple years, but then I got recruited, and I, they knew I wanted to move into marketing. And I kind of made them a deal. I said, "Hey, if I go and really crush it for the next year in this field sales specialty job, either move me into corporate or fire me." But I can't be in sales for another three to five years because I want to get into where the action is. And they followed through with that, had a good year, moved into corporate. So I was like 24 or so working in Indianapolis, helping launch what's now a billion dollar drug called eVista, did that for a few years. And then I got into the entrepreneurial environment. I mean, I remember flying out to the Bay Area Flying to San Francisco for market research. I'd land to SFO, get the rental car. I'd be jumping in the Ford Taurus from like the late 90s, driving up and down 101, going to SF and San Jose for a variety of business meetings. And you'd see like, you could just feel the energy. You know, you walk into a coffee shop, everyone had a laptop open. They were all pitching investors. You got business plans. There's just energy. There's billboards everywhere of startup this, startup that, all the stuff that you were hearing about and seeing on TV. I wanted to go back into a world of entrepreneurialism, which I kind of dabbled with in high school and college, side gigs. And so I did. So that was kind of what led me to my first role and I was hired as a number six guy at a startup, ended up running sales and marketing for that company in New York City.
1: Hey guys, are you guilty of stealing and wearing your wife's panties around the house? Well, if you're like me, then yeah, you do it all the time. Or maybe you're just one of those normal guys that steals your girlfriend's or wife's skincare instead. Hey, I used to do that too, but not anymore. You know why? It's because I use the best natural face serum for men, and it's called Caldera Lab. And as you can tell, I even have it on right now. See, Caldera Lab is a company with a conscious, unlike me. They're the only men's skincare line certified by Made Safe, EcoCert, Peta, and Leaping Bunny. Whether you are tackling dry skin, acne scars, wrinkles, or just want to invest in healthier skin, this is the product for you. See, Caldera Lab produces a serum called The Good. It's a non-toxic natural serum made 100% from plants. And guess what? They're going the extra mile in sourcing. All their ingredients are either organically farmed or wild harvested by hand with a team of botanists right outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. The Good by Caldera Lab works on all skin types. It works with a beard, a bald head, or even those men with dry scalps. You shouldn't have to decide between clean, sustainable ingredients and real results. All of their products are easy to use and simple to apply. You can apply it at night or use it in the morning. And best of all, you can get it 100% risk-free. If you don't love it, they will refund you in full. So guys, stop stealing your wife's skincare. Use a product that's designed for men's skin and actually clinically proven to bring healthier, younger looking skin. Again, The Good by Caldera Lab is that non-toxic, vegan, multifunctional serum that I have been using every night before I go to bed. It's an easy one-step routine that leaves my skin moisturized, youthful, and protects from free radical damage. And my wife says it's the best my skin has ever looked. So if you want to look like me and receive 20% off your first purchase of The Good, then go to calderalab.com and use code MILLIONAIRE at checkout. Again, go to calderalab.com and use code MILLIONAIRE. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one catch at all. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. By cutting out retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs and they get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes on sweet savings direct to you. And here's some of my personal experience with Mint Mobile. It's awesome, just like you. Plus, I'm saving over 50 bucks a month by using Mint Mobile My old provider was charging me $65 for the exact same coverage I get with Mint Mobile. So for people looking for extra savings, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/millionaire. That's mintmobile.com/millionaire and cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/millionaire. Yeah. But you went to San Francisco. I get it. You said you want to get with entrepreneurship, but then you found a company because it seemed like you moved around a lot. I like to keep track of that. So before you're in Indianapolis, you went to San Francisco, got a feel for it. And then you had a job in New York.
0: Well, actually the progression was, you know, small school, Indiana, then started interviewing with companies in the East and the West coast. So I wanted to get out of the Midwest, even though it's a great place to live. So I ended up moving out to New York greater New York area for J&J, worked there for a couple of years, actually moved back to Indy a couple of years later for this in-house job. And then I was traveling all the time. So I was always in New York and San Francisco. So it was during my business travels where I just got bit by this bug in of what was happening in like the late 90s, like 98, 99, particularly in Silicon Valley. So it kind of started gnawing at me as I'd fly back to Indianapolis and I'd be driving home from the airport and I'd be thinking, man, I really wish I were driving home from like LaGuardia to my place in Manhattan or from like SFO to like a place in Silicon Valley and SF and like doing the startup thing. Cause I just felt like it was kind of this once in, I don't know if I felt like it was a once in a lifetime. You could just feel what was happening in terms of this being major transformation to business and industry.
1: And you only have so much opportunity because at this point, are you single too?
0: At this point I was married, but without kids.
1: Okay. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. But for sure. I mean, this is one of those things. I remember debating whether to leave Lily and
1: Lily's not your wife. It's the name of the company, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really good clarification question. But uh, I was debating whether to leave Eli Lily. You know, I should really clarify. And I had an opportunity that started to brew in New York City startup. They just raised a Series A. It was in the e-health space. I would have been kind of number six employee hired. And I remember really debating it. And I... Actually, kind of true to what you said, which is like your time is limited and you have a window of opportunity. I kind of came to the conclusion that I could probably always go back to a company like Eli Lilly, but I might not be able to kind of catch the wave with this startup era. I mean, it just felt like there was a really tight window of time. In retrospect, it seems like a less bold or less gutsy, less risky decision. At the time, though, it was a pretty big decision. And the reason it was a pretty big decision is. I didn't know anybody that left Lilly voluntarily. Up to the point that I resigned, I knew a very few stories where someone actually voluntarily resigned to go pursue another job. And part of the reason for that was for many years, if you got into the management track at Lilly, all those guys retired six, eight weeks of vacation, like in their final years, final 10, 15 years, you know, back 10, 15 years of their career, they were all millionaires. You grew up in Indianapolis, you had a great life, you had a great house, you took your vacations, you had a stable job, everything was taken care of. And you did really, really, really well. And of course, to some degree is a bit attractive, but I got more attracted by the pursuit of an opportunity rather than kind of the pursuit of comfort and safety. And pros and cons of that, I mean, I still admire many people that made the decision to stick it out at Lily and have done some great work there, but that just was not my career path. So I took an opportunity to go do something pretty risky. Your wife
1: was on board or no?
0: Yeah, she was, I give her a lot of credit. I lost some of her, I mean, we were married 17 years. I got divorced five years ago, roughly, unfortunately. But she was on board at that time, 100%. It was really nice that she was so supportive and embracing and enthusiastic about it. That tired pretty significantly in the last few years of our marriage. And it's kind of an eye-opening lesson for me as an entrepreneur and no one really ever tells you this. and No one ever stops you along the way. And no board member or no investor is going to be like, hey, like, are you making sure that you're balancing everything or is everything throttled or is your family on board with this? Or are you kind of taking enough time off or whatever it is? No one's ever going to ask you that for the most part. You're going to have to ask yourself that. And you're going to have to learn some lessons from people that have either done some things the right way or the wrong way. Certainly I've done plenty of both. And she was on board 100% at that time. But then it became quite a source of conflict. In later years, and it became a lot more difficult to balance, right? And I got two kids, or eight, nine, and ten, eleven, twelve. Like as I'm going through what is now effectively my kind of fifth startup, and there's this concept uh, around decision making, for example, that's called cumulative fatigue, which I'm sure you've heard about, and other people have heard about. But I think that same kind of sentiment exists around cumulative fatigue, around travel or moving the family or missing five nights of dinners or being on the road for 20 days or taking the call and being on the phone with your manufacturer from like 1 a.m. until 6 a.m. because they're in Korea. And it does have a cost. So
1: actually, I've never even heard of that before, that term, cumulative fatigue. Could you help clarify it?
0: Well, the idea of the term cumulative fatigue is it relates to decision making. And it's actually kind of the whole, like, why does Steve Jobs wear the same thing every day? And part of the basis of that was like A, simplicity, but then also B, and Zuckerberg says the same thing, but it ends up being kind of this idea that there are finite amount of decisions that you can make without getting fatigued. So the throwaway decisions don't waste any kind of emotional or mental energy around making those decisions and just make it easy, right? And kind of the parallel that I was drawing to that is probably like all things. I mean, there is a finite, I mean, we all like to think everything's infinite and we can pull off all sorts of things. But the reality is, you know, time is finite, money is finite, ideas are finite in terms of what you can actually go and execute on. Relationships have a finite level of kind of propensity to support certain things. And that might be working or moving or whatever else it is. So kind of the cumulative fatigue corollary that I was really making is that you can start out having a lot of momentum and a lot of support you can also lose it along the way and not realize that you've lost it in some ways because you're an entrepreneur and you just keep thinking, well, I'm going to pull this off and I'm going to pull that off and they're going to follow along and I can work like this and I can also maintain my family life and whatever it is. And sometimes that's not the case.
1: That does make sense. And thanks for clarifying that because I've even heard like when they suggest eating the same thing for breakfast every morning, right? Like you were saying, it's just like something you don't have to think about. Mm -hmm. You've only got so much energy. But even in a relationship, like you're saying, a marriage or a friendship or a partnership where you have a partner in a different business, like maybe that just keeps adding up where you're saying like you might still be energized by it, but maybe your wife was on board on it. And like when she went to New York, maybe she didn't think 10, 15 years down the road is still going to be all these startups. Maybe she thought this was just a moment of being able to do it.
0: Yeah, I think one is by the 10th move or 12th move or whatever it is. Like the veneer of moving and the excitement of that, I still like it, but I mean, (laughs) it's probably called an illness, not something normative. So that's one. And then I think, actually, you just said something that kind of triggered a thought and it's kind of a belief and a conviction that I have around whether it is friendships or marriage or spiritual development or your work and your, your work relationships. There's really never like one magic moment, you know, and all these, I mean, I'm not making fun of the magazines or the podcasts or the articles or the Instagram stories or Facebook quotes or whatever it is. But I mean, there's always like three things that I did to like, you know, turn my company into a billion dollar company or like two death traps of marriage and what leads to divorce and what have you. And I do think there's some necessity to kind of capsuling some of the content and ideas and thematic concepts around that. I think the reality is there's never one thing for the most part. I mean, it's a cumulative effect of 10,000 things. And you need to do more of them right than you did wrong. And if you do 9,000 wrong and you get a few big ones right, you're probably not going to have a very good outcome even still, even though you get a few big ones right. It's possible that ends up being more like outlier from the standard deviation. So we all like to look at the standard deviation curve and look at the outliers and say, oh, that happened for them. Therefore, it can happen to everybody. And Winning the lottery is a possible pathway to becoming a millionaire. It's just a very improbable one and it's fairly stupid to use as a strategy. So I think looking at the standard deviation and looking at outliers, there's some interesting things to be gleaned from that, but you can't project to be an outlier and necessarily replicating that success. And what you can do is de-risk yourself. And that goes to a different discussion around business and kind of my perspective on trying to de-risk wherever possible, which I'll kind of save for later or, or not at all, but As it relates to, you know, 10,000 decisions, it's kind of generally what I believe as it relates to business and life is that there's no two, three, five magical decisions. Of course, these moments we look back at and we're like, man, that was a really pivotal moment and a pivotal decision. Often those are the unplanned ones too, even though you have a plan and a strategy, but it's getting more of the 10,000 things right. And that's just like, if you're dating somebody, it's everyday interactions and it's, are you making coffee or are you, you know, are you adding kindness to the relationship or are you building contempt?
1: know exactly what you're saying i think anyone now thinking too it's never one thing this one thing might have triggered you and maybe you had enough of it at the end right even if you had a friendship then you start thinking back before like 10 other things that led up to it that you just kept brushing off and then eventually you're like fuck this you know or something like whether it's an employee or you know someone who's working for you maybe they feel the same way i definitely agree with you and i appreciate you saying that because what i've tried to even establish too for some people they act like okay maybe they made a product and then it seems like they did it pretty easy and they did it in like a month or two. But then I start like even the details because I had a a younger guy that I recently interviewed and he's like, yeah, I came up with the idea and then I sat on it for a couple of months and then I tried doing it again and didn't work. And then I sat on it for another three or six months. And I'm like, that's more realistic. Like people forget that all the time that you might almost give up and then you revisit it.
0: No, I think that's a great example. I mean, I remember hearing the founders of Waze talk, the driving app, and if you perhaps have read the book, Pour Your Heart Into It by Howard Schultz and Starbucks, same story, kind of as Waze, different tracks, but kind of the same theme, which is took years to get going. And there were many periods of potential bankruptcy or insolvency. Now you look at Waze and you're like, oh, of course, it's now owned by Google and they're crushing it and it's everywhere. And like hard to imagine a time where Waze wasn't wildly successful. Well, if you hear the story, the first six years were brutal, just absolutely brutal and difficult and like fraught with failure. I forget it was five, six, seven years, whatever it was. Then they had a magic moment, but same with Starbucks in many ways. I mean, very, very, very difficult early years. And we do a disservice as entrepreneurs when this is probably part of the issue with human ego. We all want to make it sound like we're super smart and super successful. And like, we got this magic touch and the reality is if we're speaking really truthfully about things, things are a lot harder in many ways than we let on for them to be. And yes, it requires tenacity and hard work and an amazing team and investors and late nights and early mornings, but it also requires some really good luck and fortune and perhaps destiny along the way. I mean, I know many, many, many people who are incredibly smart, who work incredibly hard and they kind of haven't hit their triple or a home run maybe it was timing and maybe it was this and that and circumstance. And then I know some people that gotten really fortunate, but the reality is I think all of us have had to rely heavily on some forces beyond just what we think is our own brilliance. The older I get, the more I realize I'm less smart than kind of I thought I was five, 10, 20 years ago or maybe even five months ago. And how much you really rely on cohesion of the team and outside advisors and good fortune. And I don't think I'm not one just rolling the dice, like betting on luck. I am working in my brains out to try to be smarter, better, faster, more efficient, push the team, pull the team, lead the team, encourage the team. That being said, some of this is in the hands of God's hands or the market's hands or destiny's hands, however you describe it.
1: Or Reddit traders.
0: (laughs) Yeah. or, Or Reddit traders. Yeah. Apparently.
1: Yeah. I mean, even talking about business success, because I'll jump back in the timeline here, but like what I like to point out, some people might be super successful in the business that I've had on, or they know people who've been super successful in business, but what happens if their family life sucks, right? Or their friendship life sucks. And maybe those guys might be multimillionaires or even almost a billionaire. And they envy, like you were saying, people back home were doing football teams or baseball practice. This is just one of the components is business. And it's trying to understand the balance. And just because you got things rolling in one part of your life, more than likely, if it's awesome in one part of life, then it's probably not awesome in another part.
0: I think that's such a wise assessment. And I completely agree with that. I mean, I think this is the problem with deception is that it's by nature and definition of the word really deceiving. Like it's not obvious, right? You know, someone lies to you. In some cases, it's kind of obvious. But like when you look at this idea of deception, we're all so easily deceived and it is so non-obvious to us because that is kind of the magic peril of deception is that it's not obvious and i think we're easily deceived into thinking there's so much significance behind what we're doing at the detriment of other things like having a personal life or having a relationship my parents that's one example of something that i've felt very very convicted over the last few years What would be the rightness from a moral perspective and also a leadership perspective of my team? And, uh, you know, as a dad to my daughters who are 17 and a half and 19, looking at me or peers or friends, if I did not invest appropriately in building a better and better and better relationship with my parents, you know, it's easy to just kind of say, well, they're always going to be there and I got to like triage and I got to focus on this, this, and this. And before you know it, two years have gone by. I once had. My daughter, I tell this story sometimes to people to kind of point out how oblivious we can be when we are in the hunt. My youngest daughter, Zoe, is 17 and a half now. And this actually happened kind of in year two of Flow Water. She was 10 or 11. She used to make these super cute little ceramic, these little clay. One was like a cheeseburger. It was like a cheeseburger that had like two eyes and a smile on it. And then I forget what the other little figurine was, but they were just like these cute little figurines. And she was really proud of them. They were adorable. I still have saved the two that she gave me. And, you know, one time when she was 10 years old, she would ask me for like a month. It's kind of a sad story, actually, but I've never forgotten it. And I probably think about it every week. She probably asked me for every week for like a month or two. She's like, hey, dad, I really want to set up an Etsy account. And I want to sell these and I want to make these and I want to start my own business making these little cute ceramic figurines. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a great idea. I totally will support you. I love it. I will do this. Then one day she just stopped asking. After seven weeks, six weeks of asking, I just kept kicking it down the road. Then time passed. And one day we were sitting at the kitchen table and I was like, hey Zoe, I was like, we never actually did the Etsy account. And I kind of just forgot about it. Let's do that today. And she looks at me and she's like, dad, that was two years ago. I'm 13 she kind of laughs about the story now. I still feel pretty sad about it because I had no idea two years had passed. I mean, I thought maybe it was a few months. It eclipsed me. And that's easy to have happen in so many areas of our life, you know, where like your kid turns around and they're like, dad, I'm 13. Like, I don't even do that anymore. I'm into other things now. And so I think about that stuff pretty regularly. And well, how do I make sure that I'm balancing my life so that I'm not just fixated on trying to do one thing at the failure of three or four or five other things? admittedly, I failed at some of those things before, or perhaps am right now. And I'm working on balancing it all.
1: As long as you learn from it, that's the main thing, right? So even if you're thinking about that every week, I bet that helps so much now, even when you want to think about like, Hey, maybe I should talk to my parents this week. Cause again, they're not going to live forever.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I look at that stuff as kind of a painful reminder, but it also was a really helpful kind of almost like a, I don't know what a mnemonic device would be called that actually is experiential that sits in your head forever. But it's one of those things that does really force me to rethink about things in a matter of like, am I going through an Etsy moment right now where I'm neglecting something? And so in that sense, super valuable lesson to learn and still learning it and still thinking about it. But again, not to make that a a bummer of a story or a sad story, it really is just one of those things where, you know, we've all had those moments for sure. Whether we're entrepreneurs or not, you know, we've all had those moments. I don't think I'm like extra special by having neglected something substantial to my kids. I'm not proud of it, but the reality is we all have those things. And that's just one of the things that has been a good source of reflection for me, though. Also, admittedly, I've probably had way too many of those things earlier in my career that I have made very, very intentional efforts on correcting over the last four years, five years, you know, really to focus on work, my kids and personal development. I mean, I've pretty much narrowed it down to those three things, work, kids and family, you know, parents and siblings.
1: It's not to be a downer, it's to be realistic, right? So I appreciate you doing that because unrealistic entrepreneur podcast is why I started this thing. You know, it's just always talking about the positive things and you got to learn from that. But I wrote down where we had stopped and you had moved to New York and started working in your startup. So this was your first startup experience. And can you tell us a little bit about that and what the company was?
0: Yeah, sure. The company was called Healthology. We just raised a series A round of capital. I I wasn't involved at all in the fundraising. The CEO I've had the fortune of working for some really, really, really terrific people over my career. And the CEO that I worked for at this company named Healthology, which was kind of a mashup between health and technology, was founded and run by this guy named Steven Heimowitz. Still just probably unequivocally, not only the most unconventional, but the best boss that I've ever worked for in my life amazing. And several things made them really amazing. But that was a two-year run. So Raise Capital went through the complete market decimation in spring-summer of 2000, where you've read about it, or you know, for those of you that kind of lived through that, that was kind of where the internet bubble really, really burst. And I don't exactly know what the percentage was. I think it was perhaps 90% of funded startup companies ended up not making it. I mean, it was just carnage. In fact, our company, Healthology, was the only company that returned on invested capital to its investors. Every one of the other companies they ended up writing off that they had invested in. So that's how much carnage there was. And in fact, I was responsible for most of my time there as VP of sales and marketing. So I had two-thirds of the company reporting into me and was responsible for all revenue, sales strategy, sales execution, marketing, business development, partnerships, a lot of partnerships. And basically it was like PR Newswire for health and websites. So once upon a time, it's hard to believe now, but CBS News used to not have their own health channel. Like it was hard to actually create health content in the late nineties because, you know, it's like who writes it and you can't just take off stuff from PR Newswire, or take it from textbooks and throw it into a web page. So we used to go to big media companies and thousands of other properties and we'd say, Hey, our business is employing doctors, writing. Drafting, creating audio, visual, video, and written content around health care, prevention, treatment, wellness, et cetera. And basically, we'd go and power somebody's entire health channel before they had staff writers and before they were basically converging kind of the offline world into the online world for CBS, et cetera, et cetera. So we ended up powering something like 5,000 different health portals and websites. We basically were syndicating our content across the web at a time when everyone was trying to build a destination site. So it worked pretty well ended up selling that company to iVillage. I actually left. I was there from decimation of the market and the internet kind of bubble in 2000. And then I was there in 2001. I lived three blocks south of the World Trade Center. Uh, My wife and I, actually, we found out she was pregnant two days before 9-11. And so lived through what was also an incredibly kind of like a pandemic event in a very different way, but had a jarring, jarring impact. Anybody that lived of course, globally and nationally, but particularly if you lived in the tri state area, and particularly if you lived in New York City and you worked in New York City, I mean, not only the personal impact on it, but then of course the professional impact, where 90% of our customers were pharmaceutical and biotech companies all within New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. So we ended up navigating our way through kind of the internet bubble as well as 9 11 and getting the company to profitability about two years faster than had been projected because there was no ability to go raise further capital. And then the company was later sold. After we got it to profitability, I got an opportunity to go run a kind of opposite of New York. I got an opportunity to go run a privately held pharmaceutical company, it was mostly consumer products, in Kentucky that had been owned by the same family for 50 years. And there were five siblings that were board members in Kentucky. So I literally went from working for this super aggressive New York guy, like use F-bombs more than pronouns, you know, an incredibly intense environment with between like internet bubble and 9-11. I happened to also have a daughter that was born during that time. My oldest daughter, Royce, was born 14 weeks premature, two pounds, got down to a pound and a half. I would go work all day and then I'd spend the night at the hospital at the NICU. She was in the NICU for two and a half months, you know, was not expected to live and she just celebrated her 19th birthday on Saturday. And so I went from that environment to then going and running a family-owned 55-year-old pharmaceutical company where the five siblings were in the board meeting and grandma Blaine, the mom, would sit in the board meetings, sometimes like doze off a little bit as I'm presenting and uh, total opposite experience. So I, I kind of went from super aggressive startup to what was ultimately a time privately held family-owned turnaround company that was kind of in massive decline and needed a turnaround strategy. And then I did a few startup companies since then. Oh, where in Kentucky was it? It was in Burlingame or Burlington. I live right next to Burlingame here. There's Burlington, Vermont. I think it's also called Burlingame, Kentucky. I did not live there. It was real near Fort Wright. It was on the other side of the bridge in Cincinnati. So I lived in Cincinnati. And then we ended up moving the company closer to Fort Wright, which is a little few exits further up. So you you could, I guess, call it Fort Wright, Kentucky. So I did that for several years. And that was a CPG company. I learned a lot in that experience. Very, very different. It's such an opposite experience from working like New York City, venture-backed, hyper-aggressive to something that had been 55 years and trying to break old norms and license products in and change distribution channels from wholesale into retail. So I took a product that was been sold to wholesale channels only, consumer products, sold directly to wholesalers and took it into a retail play within 18 months you know moved it into 35,000 food and drug stores nationwide
1: and what type of products so maybe people can
0: dietary supplements there primarily there was a product called pretty difficult name not a super catchy brand name but it was called Mag Ox 400 so it was stood for magnesium oxide 400 so it was a kind of the first branded magnesium oxide supplement That was often used for drug-induced neutropenia, which is the depletion of nutrients. You know, when you're taking various pharmaceutical agents, it depletes your nutrients sometimes. I see it
1: on Amazon right now. Four and a half stars, 1,317 ratings. It's all because of you, man.
0: Yeah. That's so funny. I didn't even know that you could still buy that. I haven't looked actually in a long time.
1: The Mag Ox 400. <laughs> that's so funny. Well,
0: <laughs> I actually should, should, should go check it out. So well, that was sold, 99.9% was sold through wholesale distribution and it was getting decimated. The business was declining by 30% year over year because wholesalers were then substituting brands for generics because the profit margins were better on generics. So it looked like there was no possible way to save that. So basically, the only way I felt like we could save it was to flip it into retail. So basically moved it from wholesale distribution behind the pharmacy counter and through companies like McKesson and Cardinal and Amerisource Bergen into direct front of shelf, kind of front of house, Rite Aid, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, et cetera, et cetera. So we got it into 35,000 food and drug stores nationwide in a period of 18 months. And then I did that for three years and then I got recruited. Well before we leave there.
1: Hey guys, just giving Miss read a little bit of my flair. Did you know that companies that blog consistently receive 67% more leads than those that don't? Consistent blogging is important, but who has the time to research keywords, come up with topics, write content, and more? BKA content a content writing agency with 10 plus years of experience now offers a monthly subscription that will do it all for you. They offer different sized packages depending on how many blogs per month you'd like. You'll have a dedicated account manager that will do all your keyword research and topic creation and blog writing. You can even get social media posts, stock images, and meta and title tags. All of your monthly blog posts deliver directly to your inbox, 100% ready to publish. If you sign up right now, you can get up to one month's worth of blogs for free. Go to BKAContent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more and get your free month of blogs. That's BKAContent.com forward slash millionaire to learn more. And again, get your free month of blogs. Mental Health Awareness Month is a worthy thing to celebrate, but it shouldn't be our focus just for May. It's important to be working on your mental health all year long. The positive effects of therapy will create lasting change in all areas of your life, your relationships, your career, and your overall happiness. A therapist can help you identify the habits and the patterns that might be holding you back and how to move forward in the right direction. I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace for Therapy. You can sign up online and start therapy the same day as you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. And here's three reasons why you should go check out Talkspace right now. Number one, it's affordable. See, Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week number two the therapist network talkspace.com has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties including depression anxiety substance abuse trauma anger management relationship issues food and eating and so much more and number three it's secure talkspace.com is secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest hipaa regulations As a listener of this very podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure to use the code millionaire to get $100 off your first month and show a little support to our show. Again, go to Talkspace.com and use code millionaire to get $100 off your very first month. Did you imagine, did you get like a bump in pay to come there? And did you think that, hey, this would be a good place to move to maybe raise a family? Like, what was your thinking on that?
0: Well, after living through two years of like, you know, New York City and 9-11, the 9-11 experience was no joke for us. I wouldn't want to necessarily say that, you know, that in any way, like kind of overplay it in any way and say, like, I left traumatized by that. But I mean, it definitely had an impact. I remember physically watching World Trade Center crash, trying to run through the streets of New York to find my wife, who was newly pregnant at that time. I remember staying in my condo downtown 9 11 after 9 11, where you know, there was a tank out in front of my condo. And I used to get escorted by military police carrying an M16 to the train station every day You know, for the first month of trying to go back to work. And so it just was one of those things where you start thinking about I got a kid on the way. I've been through this crazy experience. I'm working 20 hours a day. I come home at 3 a.m you know, and the only other people riding up in the elevator with me are investment bankers, you know, and then I'm up at 7 a.m. and I'm doing it again. And you start thinking, hey, is this the right thing for me to be doing as a dad having a kid? But then the other part of it was, I suppose that was also contradicted in a way by, oh, like I got an opportunity to go run a company now. And so we were doing really well at Healthology. I mean, it was still a gnarly period of time, but we'd gotten into profitability, you know, years, years before. And we had some very hair raising times there. I mean, I remember literally coming with a check from a customer on a Friday afternoon, you know, and kind of racing it to my CFO so that, you know, we made sure we hit payroll deadlines and got it deposited in time during a period that was really, really difficult. And so once we got it to profitability, in some ways it was probably a mistake to leave because we were on the path to liquidity and an exit. The flip side was I was just super wired around challenges and then building my career, you know, and I was I don't know, 28 at the time or so. I had an opportunity to go run kind of a consumer products pharmaceutical company in a very unique position that was kind of a turnaround with some very unique dynamics. And it just sounded really interesting to me. So I suppose, you know, I've looked at a lot of things to some degree with, I tried to have an element of logic, but then I've also kind of pursued things that I just thought were really fascinating that logically made sense, but kind of intuitively, emotionally, I really wanted to do as well. So I did that. Had another kid, had a second daughter, my youngest, uh, Zoe, in Cincinnati. Wait,
1: I noticed her name didn't start with an R though, right?
0: No, we broke the progression.
1: (laughs) I know the first one started with the R. What was your name of the first daughter? Because I like that name.
0: Royce, like Rolls Royce, R-O-Y-C-E. She was named after a woman. I met this woman years ago when I was in the pharmaceutical industry. There was a doctor in Little Rock, Arkansas. His name was Clinton Cook. And I don't know if he's still living. He was probably in his 60s when I was in my 20s. In fact, I should Google this after and find out. But he used to be a very, very important customer and strategic partner and advisor of ours. And I used to take him out, fly to Arkansas, take him and his wife out to dinner. His wife's name was Royce Cook. And just super charming, Southern woman, very polite, but a total badass. She used to hunt, she used to fish. She had a fishing lure named after her. And I didn't fish, you know, I didn't hunt at that time either. I don't hunt now, you know. So I was like, man, this, this woman, she's smart. She's elegant. She's a badass. If I ever, you know, have a daughter, I would love to have a daughter that kind of emanates and is like her, which is like smart and sweet and sophisticated and polished, but then also a badass. And uh, fortunately, I have two of those daughters, but that was kind of where the name came from. My wife and I really, really liked the name a lot. And so it stuck.
1: So Royce was the first daughter. What was the name of your second daughter?
0: Zoe is the second daughter. Yeah. I still
1: like that name too, by the way, but I it is the R's, right? You have multiple R's in your name. And then I'm like, you broke the rule. So then you have Zoe while you're still there in right outside Cincinnati, basically.
0: Yeah. Had Zoe. And not only had Zoe, like kind of the first year that we moved there. And then we actually kind of now I'm, that I'm on the disclosure path. We had a third child who passed away two hours after birth. That was the last year I was in Cincinnati. So kind of the first year we had Zoe, the third year. We had our third child, Levi, who uh, just couldn't make it. He was born premature. He became septic, just like one of these weird series of events. But there was a medical procedure that was done, and my wife had a cerclage put inside of her to kind of protect the uterus and kind of make sure that she did not get into premature labor. And unfortunately, as the doctors were putting the cerclage in, got infected. And so we did actually have our second or third child kind of bookended our experience in Cincinnati. And then shortly after that, we ended up moving to the Pacific Northwest, where I took a job at a company called Univera, which was, I decided to go work for the former CEO of Avon. And I spent five years doing that for a, a CPG company in Pac Northwest. Like
1: after you were running this other company, was that part of the reason you're like, Hey, I need to go work for a different company and just get away from here. Or what was the thought process of moving to the Northwest?
0: You know, a couple things. One is I had pretty significant growth ambitions for the company that I don't think ultimately reflected the owner's long-term growth ambitions. And it's something that I can really understand, which is now I can understand a lot better that I'm 47 than when I was 27, 28 running the company, because I just think, well, everyone should continue investing and plowing money back in the company or playing for the future and throwing off profits. But they really, really, really wanted to extract a lot of profits they got to the point where they wanted the money for lifestyle. And it's very difficult. I mean, it's one thing if you want to cash cow a business, that's a very different strategy than growing a business. You know, And I was brought in to grow the business and that's what I wanted to do, which does not mean extracting 30, 35% of top line every year. And uh, eventually it got to the point where we turned it around, we moved into retail. I licensed a bunch of products from Europe Licensed about 15 different nutritional and dietary supplements from Europe, a European German company, and got it going in the right direction. We made a ton of progress on it. But then I also had a really unique opportunity to join a company that was doing 30 million years in revenue. They wanted to get to 50, 70, 100 million a year in revenue. And I got some really good advice along the way early in my career. And one of the pieces of advice that I got was pick your next job, especially when you're younger. I mean, it might apply as you get older, but especially when you're younger and this is back then, I don't know that it quite applies the same way today, but it was pick your first and second and third jobs or early jobs, not as much based on the company, but a lot based on who you're going to be working for. Because if you can work for someone terrific for a couple of years, it will be a game changer to your personal and professional development. And I had this opportunity to go work for the former, I believe he was the CEO of McKesson. And then also another guy who was a former CEO of Avon which are two super fantastic companies. And so I ended up working for both of those guys kind of in a variety of different capacities. And they kind of toggled the reins at this parent company, Univera. And I worked for both those guys for five years, primarily the CEO guy. So it was ambition, bigger company, bigger role, oriented around growth, being able to go work for a Someone that was a badass CEO that I felt like if I could go and learn and apply two, three, four, five years of my life in that environment, that it would be really helpful to my development. And then, of course, there were some economic component as well. But I generally not made career decisions based on economics. Certainly not economics alone. I mean, that's weighed into it. But I would be doing other things if I just wanted to make a lot of cash flow. And where in the Pacific Northwest? Like, what city and state? Olympia, Washington, which is about an hour south of Seattle, about 50 miles south of Seattle. It's a beautiful part of the Northwest. The company was headquartered in Lacey, Washington, and actually has since moved up to Seattle. But I lived in Olympia, again, married at the time, two daughters, we raised them kind of from the ages of five to 10 when we were there.
1: I remember Olympia being the state capital. That's the only reason I remember that name. When we had to memorize state capitals, I don't know if the kids have to do that anymore. hopefully not. It seems like a waste no
0: because there's Google right exactly.
1: Why did the kids have to learn anything anymore <laughs> you know? So yeah, you go up there and then from there what happens and I guess kind of brings us the flow of water.
0: The short of it is joined as uh, EVP in North America, ended up as CEO international I was you know promoted a variety of times, I think three or four times during the five years there. Most of my time was spent as president of North America. kind of high level on that was. Korean-owned company, I didn't own one share of stock, neither did any of my executive colleagues. But as an entrepreneur, it's nice to have some skin in the game, particularly when you're generating asset value, of course, and growing a business. It's not the nature and not the structure of most Korean businesses. World headquarters happened to be in the US, but kind of the parent company resided in Seoul, Korea. And so I joined in January of 06 to January 10, 2010, or something like that. And so I joined, we were doing roughly a $36 million run rate, and then we grew that to about a $100 million run rate in a couple of years. All consumer products, you know, there were 55, 65 SKUs, nutritional supplements, liquid beverages, dietary supplements, protein powders, stuff like that, largely sold direct kind of through an Avon-style sales force, but also sold through e-com as well. And so I did that for a period of five years, ended up as CO International, I got a call from an old guy that I had worked with indirectly. We'd done some joint ventures with this company when I was at Healthology, and the, this guy named Dr. Nashid, he was starting a company called DealOn in New York City, and it was like a daily deals business. It was a fast follower to Groupon and Living Social, kind of originated right around the same time, in 2009, 2010. So he'd kind of done a proof of concept. Did a few like had a working website, had a couple people in the team, started talking to him, and he basically had an opportunity to go join that company as CEO and get some skin in the game and get equity and join kind of going back to my New York City roots of like another era in another category in a very hot vertical of high growth econ. So did that. We exited very quickly. I mean, there was a million dollars put into that. We sold it for ten million within ten months. So that from my joining to when we exited was less than a year. It was incredibly fast. It was a great return on invested capital. I mean, to put a million in and get 10 out in 10 months was great. I mean, it wasn't like one of these retirement companies. So I mean, for me, had a good year, still had to go work, of course, but the investors did really, really well. And it was an incredible experience. And then I basically stayed on through my minimum transition we got bought stayed on kind of through my minimum commitment transition by the buying company. And then I got recruited out to the Bay Area to take over a company at the time that was called Juice in the City. And that was daily deals business that did not do so well. It raised $10 million and pretty much were down to their last million bucks and was a complete reboot. And I was brought in by the investors to restart that company. And so we basically turned it into a local loyalty rewards business. So. We developed a platform that competed with like five-star rewards, which you may have heard of. It's very big. They've done an incredible job. The founder of that company has done an amazing job of five-star rewards. We were starting right at the same time they were and growing really, really quickly. But we ended up selling that company. I learned an important lesson about trying to take over a failed business that has poured $10 million into it and it has a messed up cap table is very, very difficult to fundraise around because no one wants to pour new money in at a lower valuation. It's called a down round. Current investors don't want to have a down round. It's very complicated. So we ended up selling that business and then kind of that led to Flowwater. So I joined as co-founder of Flowwater, and that was eight years ago, roughly this month. I mean, officially in May, but they started having the discussions and meetings and planning in January and then kind of informally started fairly full-time in March of 2013. And here we are today with 45 amazing teammates that are sitting alongside me to try to do something world-changing.
1: But I guess when you left the Juice in the City to do Flow Water, had a product already been made? Or just tell us about the beginning there.
0: I learned a lot about diligence, kind of going into diligence on a company. And so I met with the investors and they brought me in and it was, hey, we're going to fund this company and we have capital lined up and balance sheet is a little bit light right now. But we've got funding for the rebirth of this company.
1: And Flow Water is the rebirth of the company that you're talking about?
0: No, no, no. This is Juice in the City. Your question is around Juice in the City, right?
1: And the transition to Flow Water.
0: Oh, got it, got it, got it.
1: No, I understand why Juice in the City didn't work. That makes total sense. But yeah, once you close down Juice in the City and then going into Flow Water.
0: Yeah, so in 2012, we ended up selling Juice in the City to a public company because it was very, very difficult to raise capital around it. And so some of the team stayed on. You know, I stayed on for a transition, but I did not want to move to Austin, Texas, which is where the buying company was. Uh, and was pretty fixated in staying in the Bay. Wait, you finally didn't want to move? Yeah, finally did not want to move. No, and Austin probably would have been a really great place to move, actually, in that time and develop roots. But no, I said, I'm going to stick this out in San Francisco here. And, you know, I'd gotten bit by the bug. I mean, I always wanted to live in New York and then Silicon Valley, and I'd only been in Silicon Valley for a year. And there's a little bit of an ecosystem you know, I was 40 roughly at the time, not even, I was like 38. And I thought like moving to the Bay, probably not going to move to the Bay at the age of 58. So I kind of felt like, hey, if I'm going to live in the Bay and develop a network and do the startup thing out here, like it's kind of like now or probably not down the road.
1: It's kind of funny because it came full circle now too, now that we're talking about this, right? When you came out there originally, you kind of get bit by the bug, but you still had not really officially moved there. And now you have finally gotten there and you're like, hey, yeah, I might as well stay now that I finally got here.
0: Yeah, it is like that. I mean, it's funny because I'm now sitting at this very moment, six miles from SFO and less than a quarter of a mile from 101, which is kind of the road that I used to drive up and down where I felt like I had this epiphany of wanting to get into the valley and the ecosystem of entrepreneurial companies. And so after I finished my kind of minimum transition commitment and completed that as part of the sale of the company, I'd taken a interim role I was on the board of a genetics nutritional products genetic company, and they needed a CEO, and so I kind of took an interim CEO role. I did not want to take that role full time for a variety of reasons, but I went and kind of filled that role. And as I was filling that role, I met a guy who was the founder of Flow Water and was looking for a co-founder. And the bulk of the original idea of this business and kind of where we are today, and it's like anything, it changes over time, modifies, either redefine the vision, or you expand the vision, or you pivot the vision, or whatever it ends up being. The mission of the company is still the same, which is to put an end to single-use plastic water bottles, but the vision is different. And I'll kind of share the distinction in a minute. But basically, I got captivated with this idea of really three things that intersected business perspective and a personal perspective, really interesting. Number one is huge category, which is water that has not been reinvented, right? And so if you look at bottled water, they've done an amazing job of taking a generic product, wrapping it in plastic, shipping it thousands of miles, selling it for 100 times markup, and turning it into waste that ends up decimating the environment like that's kind of an amazing accomplishment from a revenue perspective it's not very admirable but it's kind of amazing i agree with
1: everything you just said especially in my household single-use plastic is not allowed so
0: this is why i it so much to cigarette oh yeah that makes sense yeah okay, here's a category. We don't have a problem in the US called, if I could only find a faucet to drink out of. That's not the problem we have. The problem is people don't like what's coming out of the faucet. That's a simple problem. And the solution for that to date has been big bottle water has said, hey, let's go make a lot of money by like wrapping this brand. And you know, the reality is if brand didn't matter, almost all these bottled waters are essentially the same. So if brand didn't matter, then six or seven of the top 10 best-selling packaged waters wouldn't be brands everyone be buying the generic branded stuff that's reverse Osmos water from Target and Costco, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Wait, so you're telling me Fuji water is not special?
0: I am going on record as saying, I do not think it is special. Other, I'm, j- I'm than, joking.
1: I'm no, no, joking. I know, I know you are. I mean,
0: I was gonna say, I was gonna actually play into that, which is like, unless you define special by basically extorting water from Fiji and shipping it all the way across the world and then putting it on trucks and then wrapping it in plastic and then letting that plastic contaminate our environment. And now we're actually literally drinking our bottled water. I mean, there's the average consumer drinks about a credit card's worth of plastic every week. And an average liter of bottled water or tap water or tap water, the average consumer literally is drinking 300 microplastic particles In every liter of water. So we're now literally drinking our bottled water, even if you're not drinking bottled water. And so it's kind of an outrageous thing. And it's kind of amazing that it exists. And this is a huge opportunity. So that was like, number one was, okay, this is really interesting. Number two is the sustainability piece of it. Number three is the wellness component of it is 70% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. And kind of related to the wellness piece, you know, I go back to my kids, like they were nine and 10, eight, nine at the time, something like that. I lived in Silicon Valley at the time, taken them to soccer games. They'd have like snicker Bar and Cokes after soccer games, which is kind of amazing to me because I don't know, I guess you'd think in Silicon Valley it might be like weak rash shots and granola bars or something right, but I mean, like it was the same thing as it was when I was in Ohio. It was like fitting these kids crap, we're programming their body in a way that is unhealthy and if you look at the neural pathways and addictive properties of sugar, it's incredibly potent to kids, and we're literally programming this, and I kind of think of sugary carbonated energy drinks or sodas is kind of legalized form of heroin for kids. You know, it's marketed, it's very addictive, it contributes to the obesity, it contributes to ADHD. And look, I love Dr. Pepper. I will advocate that everyone should join me on Thanksgiving Day and drink one every year. I do that fanatically, but I only drink one every year. I don't drink one the other 364 days of the year because, you know, it's like you can enjoy one thing one time and that's okay. but. Misused it becomes really unhealthy, and I think that changing the world's landscape around ultimately providing people access to clean drinking water that they can trust is a way of rehydrating a world that is chronically dehydrated and it kind of winning people back at the tap again and having them fall in love with tap water again and In fact, the data point that I just mentioned i don't mean this is a pitch for our company, but I really do mean it as a pillar statement around. Hey, this is something that we're really, really proud of is when we drop a flow water refill station into a customer, and that could be a hotel, a school, a gym, whatever. But depending on what they had before and throughout available as drink alternatives, we will see a 50% reduction. Once somebody has a flow water refill station installed, we will see a 50% reduction in soda and coffee consumption every day 50%. And we will see a three to five fold increase in water consumption every day. And we'll see about an 80% reduction in single-use plastic water bottles. So it's kind of based on the simple premise of, well, if you want someone to do something better, then give them something that they prefer. Because telling people to just stop drinking bottled water, or go drink out of your tap, doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? It's because 75% of Americans don't like or don't trust their tap water. So they drink bottled water. Or they drink something that's filtered. So how do you solve that? Well, you solve what's coming out of the faucet. It's like if someone wants to become a vegetarian, but they absolutely hate Brussels sprouts, well, I'm not going to be very, very successful in getting them to become a vegetarian if all I'm harping on are you should eat Brussels sprouts and try them this way and try them that way. If I give them a vegetable that they fall in love with and there's like 99 other vegetables that they can really enjoy, you don't have to eat Brussels sprouts to be a vegetarian. It's actually what Tesla did with EV, which you know I used to own a Prius, and great for the environment, but you compromise and everything else. It's not comfortable. It wasn't at least when I owned one. wasn't comfortable, wasn't fast, didn't look that good. Super reliable and super uh, environmentally responsible. Loved that part of it. Tesla is now flipped it, which is it's cool, it's badass, it's fast, it looks great, it's got cool brand, there's a culture around it, and it also happens to be really, really, really good for the environment because we're reducing or removing our dependency on fossil fuels. So that's kind of the premise behind what we're doing here is we want to deliver the most trusted, best tasting drinking water that is available to men, women, and children everywhere and get them off the plastics. That's kind of our, our fossil fuel equivalent.
1: Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day, and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. And with the water, and just to distinguish before we get off, the difference in your water, again, from like a water fountain that we might see, just understanding that.
0: So what you get out of a water fountain is basically just tap water. Most water fountains don't have a filter, but let's just use this as an example because this is the most prevalent example in the United States. So if you are drinking out of a water fountain, at best or the most part, you have a one-stage carbon filter in there. But most water fountains are basically just dispensing tap water.
1: Would that be a Brita too? Is Brita just a one-carbon thing too or no?
0: The Brita water fountains or just Brita faucet filters in the home?
1: Well, I guess the pitcher that, because I know people take tap water and put a pitcher in it.
0: Yeah, I can't speak for every single Brita device that's out there, but I will say that the majority or many of devices that we all know and the other kind of kitchen products and kitchen pitchers are generally just a very simple single-stage carbon filter. You know, it's a little carbon in a pouch. And it's for sure better than nothing, but not by a lot, in my opinion. You know, if someone said, hey, do you want to drink out of one of these little carbon filter patch pitcher water systems, or do you want to drink tap water? I would always pick the former, but more it's placebo effect, because it really doesn't do that much to change the materiality and the chemical composition of the water. And it removes not a lot of stuff that's in the water. So what we would say, what we have really focused on in building our system. And if we look at kind of going back to your question of what's the difference between uh, flow water and a water fountain or tap water, the problem with tap water is a long story, and I'm going to make it very, very short. But I mean, this is another topic that could end up taking a lot of time, but I'll give you the gist of it is A, as I mentioned before, 75% of Americans don't like, don't trust the taste of tap water. B, chlorine is a necessary byproduct in almost all tap water, unless you have a well water. But I mean, if you have tap water, it's being transported from municipal into your home the safe transmission of that from the municipal into your home is afforded by chlorine. So you really need that chlorine in there to safely transport it. What you don't want is that chlorine in there when you're drinking it, because in high enough doses, it's toxic. So I'm not suggesting that it's toxic in small doses. It's not. I drink tap water. But it also does damaging things to intestinal flora. If you could have a world where you don't have chlorinated water, it'd just be like probably the food metaphor would be, if you could have a world where everything were organic, a hundred percent, we would love that. That's the ultimate goal is pesticide-free products that are grown organically and are natural in its most natural state. And so that's ideal with water. So you know, one of the other issues is you're drinking out of a water fountain, depending on kind of what is in it and what the filtration mechanism is. It's got chlorine in it. I could talk about this all day long. Don't worry, I won't. But I mean, there's 20 other examples. Roundup. Roundup is the chemical component name of Roundup that's most commonly used. The generic name is glyphosate. Glyphosate is an herbicidal product that is used commercially in agriculture, number one commercial agricultural product used worldwide now that just started getting used in the 70s. And we're now literally drinking Roundup and eating Roundup in our water and food stores. And that's because it's been used so extensively over such a prolonged period of time that you know it's now made its ways from tributaries into rivers and lakes and water systems now in our municipal water I give a lot of props to municipal water treatment. They've done an amazing job considering how much crap we have poured into toxifying the waterways. You know, and single use plastics are an example of that. By the year 2050, plastic particles will outnumber fish in the ocean. Today, if you were to look at it, and the problem with plastic is that it doesn't biodegrade, it photodegrades. So, photodegrade means, you know, you take a bottle, ends up in the ocean, one piece turns into 248-16-32-64 and to the point where it's micro and nano particulate matter. And then it makes its way into the fish that we eat, as well as the water that we drink. And that is why today, kind of my smoking analogy is that drinking tap water is kind of like you're literally drinking bottled water and ingesting it in micro particulate form. There are 10,000 known chemicals that go into making plastic products that we are now drinking, and that are lining our stomachs, there is kind of only, quote unquote, only 6,000 known chemicals that go into making tobacco and cigarettes. So the parallel to me on this ends up being, number one, there's a dose effect. You have one cigarette, I don't know, maybe it's even good for you if you have one cigarette in your life, depending on the time and the occasion, right? We all know having 100,000 cigarettes is not good for you. There's a cumulative effect, kind of like the cumulative decision fatigue that we talked about earlier. There's a cumulative effect to that. And the same goes with single-use plastics. So, you know, that's one significant thing in our ingesting of it. The other thing is, you know, it's, I think it's a lot like smoking in the sense that all these people that are drinking bottled water are the ones that are getting the toxifying effects of bottled water because of the leaching, et cetera. And, you know, that's on them. Well, no, it's now permeating in our environment. Probably a lot like sitting in a room smoking. If you're not smoking, but you're sitting in a room with a bunch of smokers or even just one smoker, the other five people are also smoking. And what they're smoking is secondhand smoke. If you've got a small room, They're literally inhaling the secondhand smoke, which is illegal now in almost all situations in all environments. And that same kind of effect is happening as people drink bottled water and they're polluting and putting it in the environment or other single-use plastics. You know, it's now causing all of us to be ingesting, eating, drinking single-use plastics. And the only way to solve it is uncycling, right? This whole idea of recycling, this is big company greenwashing and bunk in the single-use plastic water bottle world. And by that, I mean, recycling rates are uh, still a dismal less than 25% nationwide. It's like 21, 23%. So should we recycle? 100% yes, like 100%. Everyone should recycle. I live in San Francisco. Does everyone recycle here? Yes. But does everyone recycle here? No, most don't. Everyone says yes, and everyone wants to, and everyone kind of intends to. You know, the problem is even in places like the Bay, the recycling rates generally are stated to be well under thirty three percent and not that far off from the national average. And so, you know, and I'm not holding the bay up as like some like magical ecosystem here. I'm just saying This is kind of a pretty progressive area that is very pro-recycling and it still doesn't happen as much as you would think it does. And so ultimately the solution is big bottled water companies love to say, hey, this is made out of 98% post-recycled consumer waste or this, you know, recycle this and reuse, et cetera. But it doesn't happen. And the only way to really solve this problem is uncycling, which is, hey, we have to stop making this stuff in the first place. The only way to do that is to give a better solution to consumers That they love more than bottled water. And so when like we talk about outcomes data, like some of the data that I mentioned, or when I talk about like doing taste tests, like we did, I can't say the name of the product that we competed against, but we took one of the top, we took what we thought was a number one best tasting in bottled water. And we did head to head to head taste tests in LA NSF of that most premier premium bottled water versus flow water. And in blinded taste tests, we had eight out of 10 consumers prefer flow water. So what we've decided is, hey, the way to get the uncycling is get people to fall in love with our tap water again. And how do we do that? We do that with a flow water device. And ultimately that device will take many manifestations. It'll be a hardware device that you see on the website, but it'll also be a flow water faucet filter. It'll be flow water countertop unit. Someday we might have flow water water fountains. So the benefit kind of going kind of full circle here is when you're drinking out of a water fountain, you're drinking tap water and it has all these contaminants that are naturally in tap water. Some are intentionally added, some are unintentionally a function of us polluting our oceans, lakes, rivers, and landfills and tributaries. And flow water has a 99.9% removal of all of those things free of viruses, free of bacteria, and then there's also good stuff added back in like minerals, calcium like magnesium, potassium, and sodium for taste and for absorption and other things like that.
1: Your next product might be the need to be the flow water toilet or something like that where you can add that on there and use that water too after urinating, right?
0: You know, that's a tough one. LA has been doing that for years. Most people don't actually know that in LA. Their tap water is reclamation from the toilet and they actually are drinking it, but that will probably go in last in the product architecture deck. But there's a lot of progress to be made between now and then. And of course, ultimately, it is about how do we reuse and replenish and use responsibly a finite resource, of course.
1: Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. I know we dived in a lot of details and appreciate you giving giving details here at the end about the flow water. So I guess if anyone wants to check it out, they can go to drinkflowwater.com, right?
0: Yes. So if you want to look and learn more about the company, uh, it's www.drinkflowwater.com, one W. And then on all social handle, handles, at drinkflowwater, again, one W. Uh, and then my personal one is at richrasgatus
1: Cool. And is that on every social site? If so, if they wanted to connect with you and say thanks for doing the interview? It is, yep. Well, great. Well, thanks for coming
0: on and sharing your story. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me and really good to talk to you. And you have a terrific interviewing style, very conversational, but thanks for having me on your program. It's a pleasure to be on and I really appreciate it.
1: Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 75 with John of Sticker Giant. Episode 73 with Steven of Tower Paddle Paddleboards. Episode 67 with Jamie Price of Great & Beer. Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Try episode 61 with Andrew of Agora Northwest Coffee Systems. Episode 58 with Aliho of Blue Smart Luggage, a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. Or we'll try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years or episode 52 with Chris White of Shinesty Clothing, and episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go, I'm sure you know by now we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.